Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. So far in our expository series in Ephesians, we've uh, been taken to some amazing places theologically. We've had the joy of considering some incredibly deep truths about God's sovereign and decisive acts that he's done for us in salvation. Just a quick review. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 4, the Apostle Paul is praising God for his glorious act of choosing sinners to be saved, a choice that originated before the foundation of the world. And then verse 4 again, the purpose of God's choice was so that his people should be holy and blameless before him. It was in love, in verse 5, that and in accord with the purpose and will of God, that he predestined his people to adoption, to be family members of God. And it was also in verse 6 that these great saving purposes of God were done all to the praise of his glory and grace. That anthem-like chorus Paul repeats three times in uh, verse 6 and then in verse 12 and then again in verse 14. So some incredibly rich, deep theological truths that we've had the joy of looking at together as a church family in this series in Ephesians so far. One of the questions that you might be thinking is, well, what effect should all of these deep theological truths have on God's people? In other words, what are God's people to do with these spiritual realities? In some ways, these truths are so deep and so, in their own way, mysterious, we might struggle with what to do or how to respond to truths like this. Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, in this portion of Ephesians, verses 15 through 23, God gives his people one of the ways that we should respond to the mighty acts of God, of God's saving purposes for us through Christ. And what we can do is we can pray. Look at the text in verse 15 of chapter 1. When the Apostle Paul, he hears of their faith and he hears of their love, he is full of gratitude for his, for his readers. And it's this gratefulness that's spilling out of him into prayer. And he records his prayer so they would be encouraged and they would be instructed and also comforted. Now remember, when Paul wrote Ephesians, he was in prison. So he couldn't be with these people in, in their own, in, in, you know, face to face. And so what he does is he is still working for their joy in God. He's still working for their spiritual formation as God's people by writing them a letter, telling them how thankful and grateful he is for God's work in their life, and then recording a prayer for them, which is instructive and is also comforting. I can imagine how comforting it was for these people to hear that Paul was laboring for prayer, laboring in prayer for them while he was in prison. Maybe you've had that joy of somebody coming up to you and saying, I've been praying for you in a specific area. And even though you've been apart for a whole week or more, what an encouragement it is to know that God's people are praying for one another. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing for his readers. One of the great outcomes of this passage in our life as a church family might be just that, that we would be a church family that are continuously praying for one another in this way and letting one another know this to encourage each other as we keep following Jesus. So one of the questions is, well, Ephesians 1, 15-23 is telling, is exhorting us to pray. And in response to God's mighty saving acts, what can we do? We can pray. But if you're anything like me, I'm starting to scratch my head and say, well, but how do I pray? What do I pray for? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question in this text. And that really is the big idea of this text, that we would know God. Knowing God is the main idea of what Paul is calling to the attention of his readers here in verses 15 through 23. I'll prove it to you. Look at verse 17. The Apostle Paul is asking God to give his readers the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. All of that is talking about 
growing in your knowledge of God, knowing God. In verse 18, he uses different words to, to pray much of the same thing when he says he, that, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That's in verse 18. And that's another way of talking about grasping knowledge. In verse 18, again, Paul prays that you may know. So in summary, Paul is full of joyful gratitude at the saving acts that God has accomplished in the Ephesian Christians. And then what he does is he's praying for them that they might know God more and more. Now, the knowledge that Paul's referring to here is not, we're not talking about new truths, like undiscovered doctrines about God or his character. Paul is not saying here that there are hidden doctrines that you just kind of have to pray for long enough before suddenly you'll, you'll, you'll be graduated into this new realm of Christianity to now see um, these hidden doctrines of God before. No, God has given us his word. It's sufficient for all that we need. What Paul is writing here is he's referring to the divine work of impressing already revealed truth about God into the conscious awareness of these people, into their heartfelt convictions. What does that mean? Well, here's an illustration I'm going to borrow because it helped me uh, clarify this idea between knowing and then knowing, if I can put it like that. Uh, Imagine if you um, picked up a jar of honey and you looked at that jar and it said on the label, honey. I guess it would read this way for you, honey. You looked at it and you said, this is honey. I know honey. Well, if you have tasted honey, you might look at that person and say, no, there's a better way to know honey. Open the jar and now you can smell it and then you can feel it's gooey and you can taste it and now you know it's sweet. Now, if you open the jar and you experience that honey, now you have a greater knowledge of it. It's not just a label on a jar. I know this. By the way, that's kind of the way the devils or the demons would know God. They know of his existence. They know him that way. It's the label. But there is not this experience of, of, of in taking into the conscious awareness and the heartfelt conviction about God that these truths then shape the person from the inside out. That's the knowledge that Paul is talking about. A knowledge where the truths and glories of God are impressed into the experience and conscious awareness of the person. Do you want to know God better? I hope so. Be encouraged. You can, and part of knowing God better is praying. So what we're going to do this morning is walk through this passage and let Paul be our tour guide. We're going to walk through and really focus in on where Paul focuses in on the Spirit of God, the ministry of what the Spirit of God does to Uh, for his people to know God. So, number one, the Spirit of God gives the knowledge of God. We find in Paul's prayer, his first request is halfway through verse 17. He He writes the words, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That word spirit, if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that it's a capital S. And that's because it's a reference to the Spirit of God. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, And this particular, look at the titles that he gives in verse 17 when he talks about God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And again, we are looking at these passage by passage week after week, but if you were to just read from the beginning of this letter on through this part, you would be overwhelmed with a God of glorious acts, of all that he's done in salvation history. So the Father of glory does his revealing work through the agency or the ministry of the Spirit of God. In other words, Paul is reminding these readers that they cannot know God as they must without God's gracious and merciful work of his Spirit. 
The fact that we need the Spirit of God to enable us to know God is one of the reasons why at Highlands Baptist Church we ordinarily pray before the sermon. That's not just a kind of service tradition and you just do that because that's what you do. That, that is done because it's built on the firm conviction of Bible truth like this, that we cannot know God as we must without God's gracious and merciful ministry to us to understand him by the means of the Spirit of God. I wonder how you approach knowing God. Is God just a topic to be understood, a subject to be analyzed? Or is there a holy reverence in your heart as you consider the things of God to pause and to depend on the Spirit of God to reveal the truth of God to your heart? This God cannot be comprehended by human intellect alone. It doesn't mean that human intellect isn't important. It's just that human intellect is not sufficient. So Paul describes the work of the Spirit in verse 18 with some other words. He says that the eyes of your hearts being enlightened. Again, this is um, talking about the means of the Spirit of God, what he does. He's, he's enlightening the eyes of our heart. That describes the, the, how God shows us these truths. So that's like he's, how God opens the jar of honey, if I can keep using that illustration. How he opens the jar of honey for us so we can taste and see and experience God in that way. The heart in the scriptures is a reference to the inner being of a person. Uh, and kids, don't, don't think that Paul is talking here about the organ that's pumping blood through your body. He's talking about that inner part of a person where the soul and the mind and the intellect and the affections are united in the, in the center of a personality. We sang about this today, of our need for the Spirit of God to illumine our hearts to understand things of God. In the, in the first song that we sang, Here I Am to Worship, the lyrics went like this, Light of the world, you step down into darkness, and here's our prayer, Open my eyes, let me see. This concept of the people of God need the Spirit of God to know God is all throughout the Scriptures. In fact, the fact that people need God's ongoing work to understand Him remind us that our spiritual senses are often dull and dim. Far too often we go through life with a dim sense of spiritual realities that God has given us in Christ. These spiritual realities can be often kind of distant but we're not forsaken in this. It's not all up to us to figure this out. Paul shows us the way forward, and that way forward is we pray. We ask God to enlighten the eyes of our understanding so we might know God. So I'd like to encourage you to consider this week, will you pray like this for yourself and for your church family? When the Spirit of God does this enlightening work in his people, then we're going to know some wonderful realities about God. And that's where Paul writes about next. In verse 18, as he moves forward, he's going to move from the knowledge of God generally to some specific truths about knowing God. It's like a photographer out taking landscape pictures with the, with the, 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 the lens you know, pulled back to get the, the wide angle, but then he sees uh, uh, the, the distinct features of a flower, and so they use the, the telephoto lens to zoom in and to look at the fine detail of that flower. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing now as he continues on. There are three specific areas of knowing God that Paul now writes about. And they're each individually indicated by the same word. And that word is what? So look at verses 18 through 19. In the middle of verse 18, he wants us to know these specific features of God, these specific aspects, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So we're going to look at those three specific areas of knowledge that Paul is praying for these Christians 
and that we can pray for ourselves as well. The Spirit of God makes Christians aware of our gospel hope. So the Spirit of God makes God known, but how specifically? The Spirit of God makes Christians aware of our gospel hope. Paul prays for God to enlighten the eyes of his readers, to know in their conscious awareness, and to experience in their daily life that the best is yet to come. He wants them fully assured of this. The hope which Paul is referring to here is the fulfillment of all that God has promised his people. As, as God's people, we live in this not-yet-age. God has made promises. Some of them have been, have been fulfilled, but some of them we are looking forward to. A day when there will be no more sin and no more sickness and no more sorrow and no more death. A day when all of God's people are given new bodies and when we will enjoy him forever together. This hope is described in various passages in our, in our New Testament. Here's just a sampling of some of that hope that I, that I hope will warm your heart again to the glories of the gospel. In Romans chapter 8, we read this, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but... For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it here with patience. So Paul is writing in Ephesians for his readers to be fully assured of the hope that is theirs. What is that hope? Well, Paul wrote about it in Romans. Another sampling of the hope that Christians have is in Philippians chapter 3. He reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will isn't this great? Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Or Ephesians chapter 5, here in the text, in the same book that we're looking at. Ephesians 5, he says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. What a wonderful thing to hope for. Just think of Highlands Baptist Church being a church that is without spot or wrinkle Wow, right? And holy without blemish. That's going to take the power of God to do it, but that's the hope of the Christian. So the Christian's hope is something that Paul wants deeply embedded into the inner personality of, the, of his readers. And he knows that only the Spirit of God can enlighten the hearts of, his peop- of God's people to grasp that. It's as if, again, Paul wants Christians to open the jar of hope, to taste and to see it. Well, what do you hope? And what do you hope? If you're a Christian, God would want you to hope here in all that he has done for you in Jesus. Well, the Spirit of God also makes Christians aware of our value to God. The Spirit of God makes Christians aware of our value to God. Now, again, this may sound a little bit like, um, you know, uh, self-esteem help, but that's not what's happening here, okay? In verse 18, do you see how the phrasing is that Paul used? He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's one of those phrases of the Bible that you read, and there's a lot of Bible words in there. What does it mean? How is that supposed to affect our life today? Well, the inheritance is God's inheritance. You see that? It's his inheritance. So in other words, this is not referring to an inheritance that we as God's people receive, although we have that. But Paul is emphasizing the inheritance that God receives. In the inheritance, you see the words there? He says, in the saints. So this means then that the saints, that, that, and this is simply a, the New Testament term, saint means a Christian. So if you come from a different religious background where saint means something else, uh, some, some sort of high elevated 
you know, status. That's not what the New Testament is referring to here. The New Testament uses that word of, of a saint as somebody who is a, a repenting believer in Jesus Christ. This verse is talking about that the saints, the people of God, are the inheritance of God. And he highly values his inheritance. So God considers his people as his inheritance, as a rich and glorious inheritance. So an earthly king might value his root treasures of silver and gold, but what God values are the redeemed, his people. The point here is that Paul wants his readers to know very, with clarity, how deeply God values and cherishes them as his people. God's people are incredibly valuable to him and he considers his people a glorious inheritance. This is why he would talk how God would describe the death of one of his loved ones as something precious in his sight. Because he cherishes his people. It's his inheritance. Do you know that if you are a Christian, that if you are in Christ, then God highly values you and the work he is doing in you for the praise of his glory? Paul prays for more. He prays in verse 19, where we learn that the Spirit of God makes Christians aware of God's power. Makes Christians aware of God's power. So not just aware of of a hope and aware of, of his value, but aware of his power. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then what Paul does is he kind of pauses here on this idea of power and and unpacks it a little bit. This third area of knowing God is to be aware of God's power, and he spends some He's trying to stack up these terms to impress his readers with the greatness of God's power. Look in verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power. He's just stacking these terms up to overwhelm his readers with the assurance and the conviction of God's might. Now, I also want you to notice in verse 19 the phrase, toward us who believe. Paul is drawing his readers' attention to God's power that is at work for the benefit of his people. Remember, the people he cherishes as his inheritance. But this is not just kind of a cosmic karma power through the whole world, but this is a specific power of God directed for the benefit of his people toward those who believe. This means God's power is directed in life-giving ways to those who embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Which, by the way, that's the gospel. Do you know that because you've committed treasonous acts of sin against God, a holy God, that you are guilty before this God and you will stand accountable to him for your sin? Do you believe that God sent Jesus to be your substitute, to be the one who would take on himself your sin? Would you turn from your life of sin, living according to your own way? That's what a life of sin is, living according to your own way. And would you embrace God's gift of forgiveness to you through Jesus Christ? That's what it means toward those who believe. If you're not a Christian, then the way, God, the way Paul describes God's power here is not true for you. You will experience God's power in a different way one day. The whole promise to Christians will not be the hope for you because that will be judgment for you. The power of deliverance and the cherishing delight of God for his people will not be for you in that sense, in that final day of judgment, if you reject Christ as Savior. But Ephesians 1, Paul is just reminding his, his readers, you are, embr- you are united to God by faith in Jesus, and so his power is directed towards you who believe in this life-giving, beneficial way. In the next few verses, Paul describes what God's power does in Christ. And he gives us a list of four realities that God's power accomplished in Christ. 
you could, we could spend a sermon on each of these areas, but we won't. Okay, we won't. I'm going to move through them quickly. And I hope this is what you get away from this. I hope that your heart as a, as a child of God will be encouraged and assured and confident that God is able, he is able to do what he has said. He has more than enough power. You don't have to worry about it. What does he do first? Well, I'll just read through them quickly and then we'll just pause and make some, some um, brief comments on them. In verse 20, God's power raised Jesus from the dead. Again in verse 20, God's power seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 22, God's power put all things under Jesus' feet. Verse 22, God's power gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. I know that's a mouthful. That's exactly how Paul wrote it. So if you didn't get all that, it's right there in the text. That's what God did through Jesus. So what God did is he put on his power. He put his power on display through what he did in Jesus, with Jesus. What can we learn here? Paul wants his readers to know about God, to know their hope, to know they're cherished and valued as his inheritance. He wants them to know his power, but he wants us to know God's power, not just in a distant cosmic force out there. Yeah, it's powerful out there. But he wants us to know God's power in this way, that God's power at work in Christians is the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. God has power to give life where there's death. As a church family, we should pray for one another to have a conscious awareness of God's power, that God has, God has life-giving, resurrecting power. So, just quick application. In what areas of life do you feel powerless about? And I'm talking about legitimate, biblically-informed ways of life. Not like I can't fly stuff, okay? But like normal life stuff. Would you pray and trust God that he can make all things new? And you say, you don't get it. You don't get it. I have been addicted to this or I have, I have had this problem or this habit or... Wait, where there is death, God brings life. And you say, mm, okay, prove it. What Paul does here is he's drawing his reader's attention to say, God put his power on display when Jesus rose up from the grave. Trust him. Know God this way. How else is God's power at work for his people? God's power at work in Christians is the same power that, this is a mouthful, ready? That overthrew all earthly and spiritual forces and seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's verse 20. So verse 20 tells us that God seated Jesus at his right hand in heavenly places. Imagine the highest, most glorious, most grandest throne room you could imagine. Jesus is higher. There is no place of greater authority or power or dominion than the throne of Jesus. This is why Paul tells us that Jesus is Lord over all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. It's a long phrase to say that Jesus has the imperium power, the power of all powers. And stacking these terms together, Paul is wanting to emphasize that Christ's victory over these forces of evil, whether earthly or spiritual, is total and ultimate. Again, as a Christian, the power that is, that seated Jesus there is the same power at work in you by the Spirit of God. And Paul wants us to know this. 
Now, we can understand it intellectually to a degree, but like we prayed beforehand, before even the sermon, as we started the service, as we sang together, we need God's Spirit to illumine the eyes of our hearts to see and embrace God this way. So think about it. Again, what addiction or temptation or habit or thought pattern? It is not greater than the power of God at work in His people by His Spirit. Imagine a church family where we are praying for one another to know God's power this way. Say, how do I pray for somebody? A church member, and I, I just know them kind of a little bit. Paul's in prison writing to Ephesians. I mean, yes, he had been there, but by this point, it's probably people had come through and have, have moved and have, have changed in that church, and he's praying for these people this way. Friends, we as a church family can pray this way too. Imagine a church family who not just prays this way, but who believes that God's power is this immeasurably great. Parents, take heart. Take heart in your parenting. Understand that God, by His Spirit, can grant you the power you need to have the wisdom in the circumstances. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that there are great spiritual forces at work trying to pull the affections of your children to this world. They are. But, but Christian parent, be encouraged that God's power is greater. Maybe as parents, we need to repent because we worry as if we can do everything. And we forget that it is God who does the good work in our hearts. God's power at work in Christians. In verse 22, Paul continues, the third feature of God's power, God's power at work in Christians, is the same power that puts all things under Jesus' feet. Now, this kind of may sound strange, like, well, is Jesus a doormat? He's not. Paul's words here are a prophetic, he's drawing from the prophetic material from the psalm. Psalm 110, actually. It's one of the most quoted Old Testament prophecies in the New Testament. In Psalm 110, it reads this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is a picture of of total, comprehensive, complete victory, conquering over the forces of evil. And that's what God's power has done. All of the evil forces have been put under Jesus' feet. So this means that the devil and his evil forces and his diabolical plans, they're all under the feet of Jesus. Now, right now, as God's people, we are waiting for the full realization of that. Particularly the people we prayed for this morning in our missions moment, right? In Eritrea. They are waiting for the conquering of those evil forces. But it's not as if we're doubtful that it's going to happen. It, it has ultimately, in principle, it just hasn't had the effects carried out yet in accordance with God's redemptive history. You could read about this. We're not going to look at this passage because of time, but in Mark chapter 5, you'll read about a a man who is possessed by a demon. Not just one demon, but legion was his name. Thousands. Nobody could bind him. It's in Mark chapter 5, verses 7 through 13. You can read it. And nobody could bind him, and he meets Jesus, and he falls down before Jesus, and he's asking permission of Jesus. He's begging Jesus, don't torment me. It's very clear in that circumstance who is in charge. Very clear. I mean, here's this... Thousands of demons in this man possessed. He's been terrorizing the town people, breaking shackles, and he stands in front of one man, Jesus, and he's bowing down before him, before his feet. Please, don't. I beg you, don't torment me. Just a little glimpse into the power that Paul is wanting us as his readers to understand. That's the power at work in Christians. Number four, verse 22, the fourth feature of God's power that Paul wants us to know 
is that God's power at work in Christians is the same power that gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. And again, I'm, I'm borrowing, I'm using the phrases from Ephesians there for those points. So if you get lost in those words, you can just glance there in the text and you'll see them. The God's power at work in Christians is the same power that gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. The supreme rule and authority of Jesus is given to the church. Here's the emphasis. This is not meant to terrify the church. It's meant to encourage and reassure the church. Because the result then is that the church has the authority and power to overcome all opposition because her leader is Lord of all. This means here that all the benefits of having Jesus, this Lord and ruler of seated at the highest over all authorities and powers, the benefits of having a ruler like that are then graciously given to his church. We as his people then receive those benefits. So we're near the end here. This is why Jesus could tell his disciples in Matthew 28. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Why? Because Jesus has been given as head over the church. So then we as his church can go in what? The authority that we have from our head. Christ is the place where God's presence, power, and salvation are known today. In ancient Israel, God's presence and power was often displayed in the temple. But now with God's people together, we are at this new temple where the power of God is at work. So what are we supposed to do with all this talk about God's power? Here's one suggestion. Consider 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Whoever serves as one who serves, here's the tie-in with our text, by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is just one suggestion, but perhaps you've been unsure or reluctant to serve this church family or because you fear you lack the ability or you fear you lack the whatever it might be. Friends, just, just go through Ephesians 1 here and just gaze at the power of God powerfully demonstrated through Jesus. That power by His Spirit is in you for your service so that God is glorified. So would you, by faith, consider prayerfully how the Lord might strengthen you to do good, spiritual good to your spiritual family? Again, just one suggestion. There's others that we could do, but I'll let you have the joy of maybe talking about that with others over lunch or maybe this week in your Bible reading. Be looking for ways, Lord, how can I trust in your power this week? So we're at the end of chapter 1. If you're a Christian, I hope that as a result of looking in this text that you will have an increased hunger to know God more. A powerful God. I hope you desire to know God's power at work in us as a church family. Not just a Sunday morning wish dream for 35 minutes, but that you'll take this desire home with you and pray. Pray for your church family. Pray for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened to see and embrace Jesus in our conscious awareness this way. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you'd want to become one. I hope that you would want to forsake your way of life and embrace a life that, where Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's good to have a king and commander like him. Would you believe that Jesus gave his life for you? Would you repent and believe in him today? If, if you would like to learn more about how to have a relationship with God as described in Ephesians chapter 1, we would love to have the occasion to listen and to look to the scriptures together to see how 
you might know God's power in these life-giving purposes.